Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Lapse Factor Podcast. What is up, college lacrosse fans? Uh, we have another episode of the Lax Factor Lacrosse Podcast. I think this is number 148, and today three things we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the Duke-UNC matchup that takes place tomorrow, pitting number one against number two, number one Duke against number two North Carolina. And then I want to talk about uh, Big Ten action. There was a Big Ten action on Sunday that I didn't get to talk about in Sunday's episode. Maryland and Rutgers played again, and then Hopkins and Penn State did battle again. So I want to kind of recap both of those games. They have a big write-up done up for the Maryland and the Rutgers game. Before I get into it, as always, be sure to like, subscribe, hit the notification bell, and you can go to laxfactor.com to get swag and things like that. Also, if you do not already listen to audio, if you're not already subscribed to our feed for the audio version of the podcast, we're about to start putting out audio-only shows during the week specific to conferences. So we'll start going through you know, covering a couple of conferences each week, staggering. Always we'll do the ACC and the Big Ten, and then we'll do a bunch of other conferences as well. So on the off days, if you know, on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, we'll start putting out exclusive content to audio only. So go, be sure to go to anchor.fm forward slash laxfactor, and then, uh, or anywhere where you can get podcasts, period. Look us up there. We're everywhere where you can find podcasts. So now let's get into this. Duke and UNC, battle of the number one and number two teams, goes down Thursday night in Durham. Duke gets to play this game at home. Both teams, second ACC contest, if I'm correct. I don't even know if I'm correct, but Duke holds a one-goal win over number four, Syracuse, and UNC has a three-goal win over now number five, Virginia, depending on the polls. I think Virginia is number five on one in one of the polls. I think it was the coach's poll. And if that's the case, that's crazy because you have – Duke, UNC, Syracuse, and Virginia all in the top five on the coaches poll, if that is what I, how I read it. And I'll check a little bit later here. So anyway, this game, it pits the number one most efficient offense in the nation, North Carolina's, against one of the top 15 most efficient defensive teams in the country, Duke. So as we're sitting here kind of looking at keys for Duke in this game, I've been saying that you have to press UNC all over the field. I felt like I believe it was Richmond kind of gave us the formula for holding UNC's offense, disrupting UNC's offense, preventing those step-down shooters from absolutely massacring you, and they kind of played UNC pretty reasonably in their loss. Duke did that to Syracuse. Duke came out and pressed Syracuse all over the field. And in the first half, that worked incredibly well. I felt like what Duke didn't do was in the second half, they didn't adjust. Uh, in the first half, it took Syracuse out of their flow. It, what, what happens when you press teams on the outside, and Duke was shutting off adjacent players, even sticking whoever happened to be the ball carrier. The ball carrier got stuck with the ball and no one else could get the ball. That worked well, disrupted Cuse. They had hard times finishing early on because you end up kind of playing a frantic style of offense when you can't get rid of the ball and it's like, oh, crap, I've got the ball. I've got to go to the rack. Nobody else is open. They kind of put guys on the island a little bit, although they were helping, just kind of helping weirdly and late. Um, it worked. In the second half, however, 
they kept that same aggressiveness up out on the edges, and you saw Syracuse start to succeed a lot more in cutting off-ball cuts, backdooring their guys. We saw uh, Rafis at one point, <clears throat> or no, it was um, uh, Seabold at one point, backdoored his guy, and Scanlon hit him on the crease. I think it was. I think that's how it went down. But anyway, the idea being. Duke probably should have adjusted that a little bit. They probably should have opened it up for opened up the adjacents a little bit and, and only pressed the ball carrier to prevent dodges. I'd, I didn't like what Duke did in the second half, not adjusting, and they continued to just press, and they continued to just get eaten alive off ball over and over. So I think that that's one thing that Duke has to watch. UNC, it's going to work. You, you press, you're going you're gonna to stop their step-down shooters, but like Syracuse, who, who actually enjoys quite a bit of step-down step shooting from their midfield units, uh, you know, it will. You want to just make sure that you don't turn UNC's step down shooters into very effective cutters, which could happen. So they just kind of have to find that happy medium and play a little bit better on those edges and watch those backdoor cuts. Um, UNC offensively against UNC, Duke just needs to make sure that they're keeping their mids active and dodging. I felt like in the first half against Syracuse, Duke's midfielders were dodging. Even if they weren't really making a lot happen with those dodges, they were dodging and sharing the ball, dodging, moving the ball to X. And what happens is you get in a flow, everyone gets touches, and it makes everybody more effective. More importantly, if you're dodging as a midfielder, it opens things up a little bit for the attack because you keep your midfield units and the defense that they're playing a little bit more honest. If they have to account for you as a dodger, then they're going to worry about that, and now that opens you up to maybe being a cutter as well, you know, all sorts of things. It's just having good offensive flow is important. In the second half against Syracuse, Duke went away a little bit from the dodging and sharing and went a little bit more, I felt like, into dodging and shooting and they were getting shots off those first dodges. It was allowing Porter to see the ball a little better. So I think Duke needs to keep the ball moving. Make sure that you're dodging, bumping, dodging, bumping, as opposed to dodging and getting shots off. Now, Porter, he came up huge in that second half as well, and that kind of disrupted Duke's flow. So can Krieg and Cage do that for UNC or do that against Duke? We'll see. Overall, though, Duke's got the fourth most efficient ranked, uh, fourth most, fourth ranked most efficient offense in the country, not far behind UNC, who's number one. So in terms of offensive juggernauts, both of these teams right at the top per lacrossereference.com. Uh, they actually have a pro uh, subscription as well that you can go to pro.lacrossereference.com. I am a member of that, and I think they just moved into a monthly. You can actually get it monthly now. So if you kind of want to just see what that pro uh, dot lacrossereference.com membership looks like. I think you can pay, it's like 10 bucks for a month or something like that. Boom, you got it for a month through the end of the season maybe, and then you're done. I got a whole year for myself. Anyway, Duke, fourth-ranked offense in the country, UNC's number one. Problem for North Carolina is per lacrossereference.com, 42nd-ranked defense, and Duke's is 13th. So Duke, in terms of just offense and defensive firepower, they are definitely a little bit ahead of North Carolina, but make no mistake, North Carolina absolutely could win a shootout. But I think for Duke, going against that North Carolina defense, they just have to keep attacking, keep attacking, try to win those one-on-one -on -one matchups, make sure you're moving and sharing the ball, hitting cutters, hitting backside, just make sure they continue to play good team offense like they did in the first half of the Syracuse game and then in the, you know, the final four or five minutes of the Syracuse game, and Duke should be okay. Now, keys for UNC. They're going to struggle with one-on-one -on -one matchups. Uh, Syracuse did at times, and I think Syracuse defensively, they're ranked better 
than UNC is per uh, lacrosse reference. So you have that. But I think in North Carolina's case, I don't think all over the field they have the defenders that are going to win those one-on-one matchups. So I'm wondering if we may see out of North Carolina a little bit of that super help defense that they played against Denver where the slides are coming automatically. And then maybe they'll press Duke as well so that the slides have more time to get there. But either way, North Carolina is going to have to play help defense. I don't think they're going to be able to put anyone on an island. Syracuse at times put um, their defenders on islands against Duke Dodgers, and and they held up pretty well. So they would slide late where they had to. But I think that North Carolina is probably going to have to slide early and often. And their young keeper, Krieg, he needs to have a good start. He's been playing really well, above 50%, but he has not faced – you know, a, a team like Syracuse yet. Virginia, uh, they were pretty good, and Krieg was good in that game. Uh, he struggled against High Point, but he's been in the 60s in terms of save percentage since, since that game. So he has to play well as uh, as well uh, on top of their defense, having to just do everything they can to provide help when Dodgers or when defenders get beat by Dodgers. Offensively, UNC is capable of winning a shootout, though. So even if defensively they don't hold up well, if 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 Duke scores 16 goals, can North Carolina score 17 goals against this Duke defense? I think Syracuse put up 14, so I don't see why North. You know, I think that this is going to be a, a game 15 and above. I don't think we're going to see a low low scoring contest here. So North Carolina. Carolina, even defensively where they falter, they have the offensive firepower um, to win a win a shootout. Now, one of the things I think they need to do, though, and keys offensively for them is going to be if Duke does come out and press, A, they have to win their one-on-one matchups as Dodgers. I think they can do that. I think you put the top six offensive players on the field for North Carolina, almost every single one of them is capable of winning a one-on-one matchup. And then on top of it, once you win that one-on-one matchup and you draw a slide from one of the Duke defenders, you start hitting people as cutters, backdoor cutters, as step-down shooters. So they just have to make sure that they handle that. They need to make sure they handle that pressure well. And where Duke does come out and pressure them, they just have to sting them. Uh, One place I would attack off ball specifically, Carpenter, number 33, long pole for Duke. He has been really good when the ball's on the deck, ground ball machine, plays really well up on the wings. I think he's played a little bit of close D at times, depending on the matchups as well. But again, in the Syracuse game, especially in the second half, he got exposed a little bit off ball. And I think part of it was Syracuse was running him adjacent. And as he's trying to guard one of those, you know, deadly Syracuse midfielders, he's kind of coming out trying to shut them off. And there was numerous times where he got beat to the cage by cutters. I'd say at least three times when I was watching the highlights this morning. So if I was North Carolina, I would say, hey, let's really put this guy near where we have ball carriers, see if we can get him to turn his head a little bit too often, send guys back door on him. But I'd try to attack Carpenter specifically because Syracuse had a lot of success with midfielders cutting, cutting off of him. Um, face-offs, huge factor in a Q's win. Uh, Naso, Naso, uh, he was incredible. Uh, slight edge, I'd say, goes to Duke here, but UNC's top two guys, Tucci and the other guy, um, the other guy was 59% and Tucci's sitting at 64%. Tucci's taken, uh, you know, 20 or so less draws than the other guy, but both very capable. So do they match up better uh, with Naso and the Duke wings? I am not sure. Uh, but Naso, he's chilling at 67% after the Q's bloodbath. And uh, so this battle at the faceoff dot is going to be huge. The wing play is going to be huge. So that will be something to watch. And then the other thing is the uh, the keepers. Colin Krieg, can he play as well and keep pace with Adler? And I would say that, you know, on a good day, Krieg could be as good as anybody. The kicker here is going to be he's playing Duke 
on this day. So, I mean, North, North Duke's played a really tough opponent now in Syracuse. North Carolina has played a really tough opponent in Virginia, and Krieg fared well in that game. Adler fared well against Syracuse. So kind of the goalie battle again in a close game. What goalie is going to come up with the big stops? What goalie is going to end up with more saves? Oftentimes that will end up being the goalie that comes up with more saves will end up being the goalie that gets the W in the win. Now in this game overall, I, I you know you know me, I am terrible at predictions, absolutely terrible at predictions, but I do like Duke. On paper, if you go by lacrosse reference, Duke is a more complete team. They are almost as good as North Carolina offensively, and they are much better than North Carolina defensively. Uh, but once again, you got to play the game still, and we're playing this at Duke, but it's only, what, a 20-minute bus ride from, from Chapel Hill? I could be wrong on that. For all I know, it could be like three or four hours, but I do believe they're pretty close. Hence the rivalry. So I like Duke in this, and I, I like Duke in a shootout, and I like Duke in a very close game. One two-goal game, maybe. If it ends up being a two-goal game, I presume there is an empty netter or a, a late-game goal scored because they're pressing and trying to get the ball back or whatnot. I think that the battle of Sowers versus Gray, I feel like in this one, normally you, you don't necessarily see JT guarding the other team's best player, especially if that other team's best player is a Dodger, being that Gray does the, the bulk of his damage off ball, we very well may see a JT Giles Harris versus Chris Gray matchup. So that'll be something to watch. Who guards Gray and how well of a job do they do uh, with him off ball? You could afford to kind of let him beat you on ball, carrying the ball. You really can't afford to let him open up and get the rest of that offense flowing by, by allowing him to beat you off ball. And then Mike Sowers, I presume you're going to see Bowen guarding Sowers. Advantage Sowers all day. I mean, I don't know if North Carolina has a, a defender capable. They, they don't have a defender capable of, of hanging with Sowers. Even Bowen. Bowen is just too big. He's big and physical, but he does not have feet that are going to be able to hang with Mike Sowers. So I, I give the slight edge here in terms of matchups to Sowers simply because Gray is dealing with JT Giles Harris, best defender in the game overall, and JT's strength happens to also be Gray's strength off ball. Uh, cutting off ball finishing for gray and then in terms of jt off ball you know covering guys off ball was one of his strengths he got beat early by um uh by cuse on one of the dodges hilts uh, beat him uh, left-handed quick stick off the crease and it didn't happen again the rest of that game in terms of, of of jt giving up a goal like that so i expect that to be a matchup and i wouldn't be surprised in this case to see jt covering North Carolina's best player. So uh, I, I give the edge to Duke. I think Duke wins by a goal or two. I think Sowers and Gray are going to be end up neck and neck in terms of their points production. But the at the end of this day, the team that wins this game, assuming both players put up you know similar, similar points and have similar quality games, uh, the winner of this game, the edge is now sitting to that person. Like I said a couple weeks ago, I felt like Gray kind of had, had the edge, uh, and then after this Cuse win, I automatically give Sowers the edge. He scores the game winner. He's big down the stretch, 3-3 three and three against a very capable defense, the number four team in the country. So he's got the better win at this point, and that was a big performance for him. So this game right now, the winner of this game at the end of it, assuming, assuming both of them play similar games and equally well, it's going to end up winner is now the edge for the Twarton. Um, and then we speak, we're speaking about Twarton. Got another Tawartan candidate, uh, probably a finalist, playing in the Maryland Rutgers game. So this game took place Sunday. I had already recorded the podcast and was sitting on the couch watching this as you guys were watching 
me ramble. Rutgers, they jumped out to a 3-0 lead and then held a 4-2 lead by the end of the first quarter. So it was another really good start for the Scarlet Knights. Freshman Shane Knobloch, he was recently honored as one of IL's top freshmen. He got the scoring popping with a nice goal off a corner to middle dodge at about the 12.07 mark of the first quarter. Ryan Gallagher and Connor Kirst each tallied goals after that. All three of those Rutger goals were unassisted. Kyle Long scored unassisted for Maryland, and then Knobloch struck again unassisted for Rutgers, and then it's 4-1 Rutgers. Maryland ends up getting a man-up opportunity to end the first, and Anthony DeMeo stuck it with 11 seconds left in the quarter, assisted by Logan Wisnowskis. Now, a big part of the story of that first quarter was face-offs. Rutgers won five of seven draws over the first quarter, and that was something that Maryland would not allow them to do for the rest of the game. Rutgers ended up, or Maryland ended up winning the bulk of the face-offs after that. Second quarter, Maryland flips the script on the draws, winning five of eight, and they also forced Rutgers into failing on three of four clears. So you win five of eight faceoffs over the course of the second quarter, and you cause the other team to fail on three or four clears. That gives you a lot of possessions to play with, and that was that was pretty much what Maryland needed to control this game again. They end up scoring six unanswered goals to start the second quarter, spearheaded by Jared Bernhardt. He scored the first of, his first of the game with 10.31 remaining in the second, and then Maltz and Gepper each scored. Bernhardt assisted on Gepper's. And then, uh, and then Bernhardt scored again, 329 left in the half, giving Maryland a 7-4 advantage. Maryland wasn't done. He assisted Kyle Long a little bit later. Bernhardt finished the half with three goals and two assists. All came over that huge run spanning the second quarter. Adam Charlambides, he stuck one for Rutgers at the end of the half, getting Rutgers back within three, 8-5 Maryland at the half. Now, Rutgers was able to strike first. Oh, my mouth is getting dry. Rutgers was able to strike first in the second half to get within two goals, but that's as close as they got the remainder of the day. David Sprock scored Rutgers' sixth goal, and then Logan Wisnowski scored an unassisted goal for Maryland to extend the lead back to three, nine, six, and then that would be a developing trend. Rutgers would get things back within two. Maryland would score again to extend the lead back to three, and in the end, final score, Maryland 13, Rutgers 9. Now, Maryland's defense played insanely tough. As we're sitting here trying to figure out where does Maryland stand in relation to the ACC teams in terms of offensive quality and output and then defensive quality, from the outset, even as Rutgers jumped out to a three-goal lead, you could tell that Maryland's defense came to play as they were kind of forcing Rutgers into long possessions, and then you got the feeling that Rutgers was kind of lucky at times to come away with some of those early goals because Maryland was playing good defense, and it was just Rutgers taking care of the ball through a full possession, often scoring towards the end of the shot clock. And I think lucky is a bad word. I think what it really was was, oh, shit, Rutgers is up by three. Like You're kind of looking at how Maryland's playing defense, but next thing you know, Rutgers is winning by three. So I think it was partly, in the end, Rutgers won more possessions. Rutgers had the ball nonstop over the course of that first quarter. So despite that really good defense by Maryland, Rutgers was able to score those three goals. You know, And, and what you look at in games like this is that production where, you, where it doesn't look right and the disparity in the score didn't look right considering Maryland wasn't playing terrible defense. That type of play is usually hard to sustain. Ray Hill, Grill, and Makar all played tough. Makar picked up a GB and had a cause turnover. Uh, the others didn't factor as much in the scorebook, but you could see them doing work, uh, disrupting play, generally just playing really good off-ball defense, on-ball defense, do you know, covering Dodgers effectively enough that they didn't have to slide and bring a lot of help, but when they did, the help was there. So, and then I think uh, Puglesi, uh, he got beat early by Knobloch. 
from behind, but then he and the rest of the defenders, after getting beat a couple of times early, they adjusted and then ended up settling in nicely. But credit to Knobloch for beating Roman Pugliese uh, on a dodge from behind and scoring a goal. That kid's a freshman going up against one of the best short stick uh, midfielders to play the game, period, in a long time. So stats off, uh, stats off. So hats off to him. Stat lines for Maryland. They won 15 to 25 faceoffs on the day. So despite getting murked in the first quarter, they end up cleaning things up. Justin Shockey took every one of those draws. He adjusted as well as you could. Uh, he got for, uh, three first half illegal procedure calls that resulted in a 30 second technical that undoubtedly hurt him, obviously, but he won out the rest of the day for the most part. Maryland took more shots, 40 to 34 over Rutgers, and they put more of them on cage, 23 to 16 over Rutgers. Rutgers had more saves. Kirst had 10. McNaney had seven, but McNaney faced seven less shots. So that plays. I give the nod here to McNaney for doing just enough to, you know, to get Maryland the win, get Maryland the win by a margin nonetheless. But Kirst played okay. Maryland's just deadly on offense. What the hell are you going to do? Maryland. They had 19 turnovers to Rutgers 18, but I still give the advantage to Maryland on that one because in the end, they ended up with more possessions throughout the game and they were just playing loose and fast. You know, once they got their offense flowing, if you're scoring goals and you're playing well, you'll take some turnovers here and there. So, you know, I think that even though Maryland had one more turnover than Rutgers, I still give that advantage to Maryland for having more possessions, less turnover to possessions. And then both teams cleared the ball well. Uh, The difference was Rutgers failing on that one of four over the second quarter, or or only completing one of four of those clears over the second quarter. Other than that, both teams were pretty lights out. And then Maryland picked up 31 ground balls to Rutgers 24. Eh, face-off discrepancy. You lose 10 more face-offs than the other team, they're going to pick up some more ground balls than you on the, in the, in the uh, box score. Scoring for Maryland, Bernhardt, four goals, two assists off eight shots, only two turnovers, but he caused one as well. Six of eight shots were on cage. That's a monster game to Wartenworthy for sure for Bernhardt. Logan Wisnowskis and Kyle Long were both right behind him. They each had two goals and two helpers. Long scored his two goals off just three shots, so kudos to him. On that, Wisnowskis also turned the ball over quite a bit for turnovers, which kind of negates at least one of his points, you would say. So he'll have to watch that. Bubba Fairman, he put up two goals off six shots. Both of the shots that he scored were on, you know, the two, the only two shots he scored were on cage. So he puts it on cage, he scores. And then Daniel Maltz, he got blasted. Oh, man, he got blasted by a Bubba, Bubba Fairman shot at one point, hit right on the spine, right below where the shoulder pads are. So he left the field, and I didn't notice if he came back. I wasn't paying that close attention at that point. It looked like it hurt badly. Poor kid. Uh, scoring for Rutgers, Charlem Beatty's two goals, Knobloch two goals, both in the first quarter. And then no one else put up more than a point. Connor Kirst, he was quiet all day, nine shots, but only one goal. So that's not a good game for Kirst. Maryland's defense did a great job preventing quality looks, and they stayed on guys' hands all day long and generally just didn't get beat all that often. So Maryland, credit to Maryland's defense for how they covered these Rutgers guys. Goalie battle. Like I said, McNaney, he puts up seven K, uh, seven saves for Maryland versus nine goals against. Cursed, 10 saves versus 13 goals against. Both played a great game, but I give the advantage to McNaney. Those seven saves versus 16 shots faced ended up being enough to get the win, and you get the feeling that even if he faced more shots, he was probably going to be up to the task. Next up for each, Maryland faces Penn State at home on 4-3, and Rutgers takes on Ohio State. I, I expect both of them to pick up wins. Rutgers probably going to continue to beat every else in the Big Ten that isn't Maryland, and Maryland's probably going to beat everybody 
in the Big Ten. Another game, and I, I, this one did not go as I expected it to. Johns Hopkins, uh, they lose to Penn State 11-8. Hopkins had a good start as well in this one. They held a 3-2 lead at one point in the first quarter, 4-3 lead to start the second quarter, but the success was short-lived. Once Penn State got the lead, they held on to it for the most part. Hopkins was able to tie things up at eights, scoring the first goal of the fourth quarter, Garrett uh, Garrett Degnan unassisted, but that happy time was short-lived as Mac O'Keefe scored a goal at the 9.55 mark of the fourth to give Penn State the lead for good. O'Keefe scored a man-up goal just inside five minutes left in the game to extend the lead, and Jack Trainer ended things for real just 30 seconds later, extending the Nittany Lions' lead to 11-8, and that's how the game ended. Um, stat line, I'm happy to report that Kobe Canise, uh, to a degree, he won this game for Penn State. The kid faced 20 shots on cage, only let up eight of them. That's 15 saves on the day for Canise, and Kearson only put up nine saves in net for Hopkins. Hopkins put more shots on net than Penn State, but Canise, uh, 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 but Canise, as a goalie, he played much better, ends up winning the ball game, and I mean, I've been sitting here talking about Kobe Canise for a while. Uh, I thought two years ago he was going to be the goalie of the year. He had a down year, was not having the best year in 2020 either. He hasn't played incredibly well this year. He's, he's been good. He's been serviceable. But this was a breakout game for him and huge for that Penn State defense. Without without him pulling that game off, this is a ball game, and Hopkins very, very, very well, more than likely wins it. Um. It's more complex than that, obviously, though. Penn State, they turned the ball over six more times than Hopkins. 22 turnovers for Penn State in this one. That hurt them. Hopkins picked up some more more ground balls. But in the end, when your goalie makes six more saves than the other guy and it's a close game, boom, you get a win. Another huge factor for Hopkins was that their uh, flow was pretty bad in terms of uh, faceoffs. Was uh, Penn State won 18 to 23. So offensively, Hopkins lacked in, in possessions. Gerard Arceri won 15 of 19, and then Jake Glatz won three of four. So Penn State dominating the faceoff dot. That factored heavily in this win as well. And then a bright spot for Hopkins was despite this possession disparity, they hung. You know, they didn't get the ball a whole lot. And at times you felt like, oh, when are they going to get the ball back again? Pose- uh, Penn State had a lot of long possessions, uh, and there was a lot of periods where Hopkins just didn't get a good look and in, in between letting Penn State get numerous looks. So despite the fact that the faceoff disparity was that bad, that the possession disparity overall was that bad, Hopkins still hung. So they could take care of some stuff at the faceoff dot. Giddy up there in this game as well. Let us check to see what else we have here. As we're sitting here and we're talking about North Carolina and Duke, one thing I didn't do is rip through the stat sheet. Sowers at this point over Duke's nine games has 50 points. And Chris Gray edging him slightly. He's got 53 points over North Carolina's eight wins. I still give the edge to Sowers here, though, in terms of actual playing time, time on the field, despite Duke getting one more game than North Carolina. Sowers hasn't played as many minutes in each game overall as Chris Gray has. And then like we like we talk about, because Chris Gray does a you know good a good chunk of ball carrying and off-ball type play, he ends up kind of being a little bit more of a focal point in his offense. So for Sowers to recoup, regroup here and put up 50 points over Duke's first eight games, that's pretty crazy, but watch out for Gray. And then as you're looking at those two at the top of the battle, that second tier of guys, Joe Robertson for Duke, 32 points. Brennan O'Neill for Duke, 
30 points. We also have Nikki Solomon at UNC, 27 points. Tanner Cook, 25. So, I mean, the edge the, the edge goes to Duke's supporting cast overall, I think, especially at the, the top side of it. I think UNC is going to show a little bit more depth in scoring in terms of their top six, top eight offensive guys than Duke's. I think Duke's top six, though, are better than North Carolina's top six overall. But I think North Carolina has a better top eight than Duke does. So that's going to play a little bit in that as well. And the other games that we have here to look at for this weekend, what do we got going? I barely, I've barely looked at this, so I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants on ripping through these. We've got Delaware and Fairfield. I like Delaware there. Let's see here. Boston U against Utah. Utah's heading out here to play them. Big one in the, uh, in the America East. Vermont at UMBC. That's going to be a huge game, a, another huge game conference game. Hobart at Bryant. In the NEC, that will be pretty huge. UMass at Drexel is another big one. Providence and Villanova doing battle in the Big East. That'll be huge. But more importantly for me, we've got Notre Dame at Syracuse on Saturday at noon. So that's going to be the the, the big game most likely as I'm looking at these uh, on Saturday is going to be that Notre Dame at Syracuse game. We also have Rutgers, Ohio State, Richmond at Virginia, but nothing beats, uh, even though I'm a Cuse homer, I could still say, probably for most people, the big game of the day, Notre Dame at Syracuse. Towson at Hofstra. Towson coming off a big win over Loyola. Colgate and Bucknell, that'll be a good battle. Penn State at Maryland. You know, you're going to give Maryland that one. Georgetown at St. John's. Georgetown probably beats them. But is Caraway back? Is he going to be playing? So that's what we're looking at. I think another one, uh, a Patriot League game, Loyola at Navy. Loyola's going to be looking to bounce back for real against Navy here. And uh, that's that's it, guys. There's not a lot of huge marquee matchups in terms of conference games that we care about. Uh, Robert Morris and Jacksonville, crap like that. So I'm going to get out of here. I've yammered enough here. I'm going to uh, end this now. As I said, we are going to have an audio-only podcast that is going to drop on Friday. And then we're going to do our live stream 10 a.m. Saturday morning on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash laxfactor. But you can check Facebook and Twitter. We'll put links up to it uh, about an hour before we go live. And then, as always, Sunday show. So make sure the audio people, you guys are peeping that. But if you're not someone who traditionally listens to us on an audio platform, if you want to get some extra content, uh, be sure to check Friday because we'll have an audio only podcast come out then where we're going to talk more in depth about some of these matchups. I want to talk specifically about Hobart Bryant. I want to talk a little bit about Vermont UMBC and a couple of the other conference games that I don't always get a chance to talk about because if all I talk about is the lower level teams and nobody ever listens or watches. And uh, so I have to find a happy medium between in- incorporating these guys into the mix, but talking about the ACC and the big 10. So that is it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. I am going to get the hell out of here, and I will be back Saturday morning for the live stream, 10 a.m. on YouTube, and then Friday morning, audio-only podcast coming out, so go look for that as well. Thank you. Hoost is out. 